All right, folks, we're back with part two of episode two of COVID College, Zoom Zoom, which I must reiterate is not sponsored by any car company or uh, video conferencing technology. Once again, I am Sean Lonergan. And I am Jack Povolitis. With a little bit more of a serious take on how virtual education is impacting higher education across the country. So to open up, I think what I want to hear from you, Jack, is how you felt about virtual class and whether you think it's been an effective alternative to the experience you get on campus. Yeah, I definitely think this is going to be the more existential side of the conversation. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I would say I feel like a mixed bag. And in in some ways, I've actually been more motivated to complete my work, whether that's just the fear of getting called on in a in a in a electronic classroom setting, or for whatever reason, I've in some ways been actually better about my work. And then in completely different mindset, I feel I feel a lot of times this complete lack of motivation, really have had some difficult times framing myself in the mindset of I've got assignments, you know, I've got a paper due, I've got this reading, I've got this quiz, or I need to show up to class and participate. I was wondering if that was sort of the same for you. Yeah, I agree. I think you touched on a lot of really important points there, Jack. But I think the biggest thing for me when it comes to the transition is you're not, I think the interactions you're having with your professors and fellow peers is very different. And I think like we talked about in the first part, um, I'll buy it a little bit more comedically, is that it's it's very much a different dynamic. And I think it took some adjustment, at least for me, just to, you know, not only figure out the software, but just figure out like how these classes were going to be different. And for some, it's been, some of my classes, it's been an easy transition. Um, A lot of them are lecture based and they can, the lectures can be done remotely and you can do them at any time of the day, which is nice. And I think having that flexibility to complete um, your work at any time of day regardless of when classes for those classes has been nice. But at the same time, I think it's also difficult when you have those classes, you're, you're getting a a different experience with the material. And a lot of the time uh, professors are cutting down on the material. And I think that brings up another question of how, how this should, should, if at all affect tuition Uh, is every school university of Phoenix right now. I mean, it, it, it definitely feels like it at this point. And I want to know, and the, I guess the question I'm asking is, what's the fair way to do this? And is it is there are there any possible ways to alleviate these kind of problems that, as well as I think, at least in my experience, professors and my school has been adjusting, I think it's still very much a fragment of the experience that, you know, I signed up for, if you will. I, I was wondering what you thought about that, Jack, if you think there should be a way to cut down on tuition or at least provide some sort of financial support for students who may have other priorities like we've touched on with responsibilities that they need to take care of outside of school or even if they're the technology or that they have or the internet they have access to is just simply not up to snuff. I wonder what you had to say in regards to that. Yeah, I think you make a good point that it kind of does feel like every college is the University of Phoenix now. I don't really know if I could argue that there's a huge difference between an institution that claims to be really prestigious and and hold a lot of merit in its name versus just DeVry or Phoenix now, where they essentially are 
engaged in the exact same business. And the only difference is that the professors at, you know, my school have higher credentials, but they're, they're teaching in the same way. And I think what wraps in huge, what wraps in a huge way into that conversation of tuition is schools constantly tout that like the reason you have to pay what you pay for the school, whether that's 15,000 a year, 30,000 a year, 70, 80,000 a year is it's the experience and the value and the merit of the on-campus education, the access to those professors, you know, what the campus feels like, the the organizations, the community, everything that the college physically holds is what you're paying for and what right. warrants that price. And so now we have to ask this question of now that all that's taken away from me, what is a fair price? Because those professors I have still have PhDs, but at the same time, you know, they're teaching me the same way Khan Academy taught me chemistry. It's just over a video. Right. Yeah. And so I don't know what, I, I mean, I know that we've had a conversation about it and we've talked about this virtual education credit. And I definitely think that's something that we're going to talk about a lot more on this podcast, but it, it's a, it's a really loaded question of how do we offer something like work study for students that aren't on campus anymore? I don't really know if there's a solid answer. I guess I would say there needs to be an adjusted tuition, but I'm not sure what the right number is. Right. I'd agree. I think another important angle to consider in all of this is the idea of a lot of these schools are have a certain, you know, a lot of them are in a, a fortunate position where they have very sub- substantial endowments where they can fall back on that sort of support to get them through these, these uh, trying times, of course. But for a lot of schools, in fact, I think the great majority of schools, regardless of whether it's a liberal arts school or a larger state school, a lot of them aren't in that privilege of a financial position. And as a result, the argument for keeping the tuition the same is to be able to support all of the resources that we will be able to eventually get back once we get through the pandemic, which, you know, that that's the big question, right, is when we'll actually get back. For me, at least for my school, and I know it doesn't apply for me as somebody graduating, but I think for somebody like you, Jack, coming back, I, there's still a lot of um, speculation in the air of when students will get back to campus, whether this is going to be something that carries into the fall with a second wave, and and just the, being informed about how this is going to go down and like having a comprehensive plan. And I think my school's done a good job of laying out the options. They've been pretty transparent about what the extremes are, anything from opening up school in October, November to having it completely remotely, to even interspersing virtual classes with in-person classes. So there's obviously a lot to be discussed here, but I think at the same time, it's important to recognize the issues that lie with with the students. And I think, like you brought up earlier, I think this idea of a virtual education credit is something that we should talk about more in greater detail. So the basic idea is, and this is something that is very much, I don't think it's been really discussed formally in how we're going to handle this in the long term should virtual education continue in the long term. But the idea of it is you have this federally mandated credit that's awarded to students through their institutions of money meant to cover expenses that have accrued, such as having access to adequate internet in order to get the same level of education as their peers in a virtual setting. 
it doesn't have to be a hefty amount, but certainly a sufficient amount to make sure that students are getting the the level of education that they're paying for, especially if we're not altering tuition. So I think a lot of this issue of socioeconomic disparities are coming into play here. You know, you have well-off students from wealthier socioeconomic backgrounds who don't have to worry about that kind of thing with internet. Whereas, like we've discussed in episode one about other students who are coming back to households where they're cramped and a lot of people's a lot of people are using the internet at once. Um, I think this is something, Jack, that we we should really seriously consider, or at least some variation of it, to ensure that people are getting the same access to education virtually. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think I think what heavily comes into this conversation is you have to look at we have to look at it sort of in the view of what is it like when you're on campus because I think the argument that I would make for it is when all the kids are on campus, internet is provided to them for free. There's if you can't afford a laptop or can't afford a device to access the internet or to anything like that, there's computer labs or there's computers you can rent from your school. And so what what I think a lot of colleges do is when they bring their students who either are either paying full tuition or getting merit scholarships or are getting need-based and financial aid is that they level the playing field for them in person. And so I think the way this needs to be looked at is when kids go home, that playing field is oftentimes very uneven. And so I think the idea with this virtual education credit is we need to level the playing field at home so that when kids come back to in-person, everybody's back in the same field. Because like, like you said, and this kind of, this goes back to a point I just really quick wanted, like, I've thought a lot about this raising tuition, lowering tuition. And since it is such a temporary, temporary problem that I think lowering tuition so much might kneecap to, so to speak, a lot of institutions to where they've got to get back on their feet and, it might be really hard for a lot of families to be able to afford or students to be able to afford that tuition. But I think that that is a burden that shouldn't necessarily fall solely on the institution, that that could be another sort of credit thing or not credit thing, but there could, there could be a program in place to help families afford that or help students afford that that isn't a loan because... That's a whole other issue, right? <laughs> yeah. If we see 500 institutions close their doors, then the whole idea of what a diploma from all those institutions means completely changes. And right. so I think that ties back into this whole idea of a virtual education credit where we really need to make sure that any student enrolled at, say, the University of Madison, Wisconsin, when they go home, has the exact same level of access to internet technology, any any resource that they textbooks. would get on campus. Yeah, yeah. Right. textbooks, exactly. They need all those resources exactly the same on campus as they do off. Um, and I think what comes in with that is we like we look at some of these uh, some of these resources that are offered. Like in my in my case, the alumni office in my school, I could go in in person when I was there and organize meetings or phone calls or email conversations with alumni in person, but to do that at home I need internet. And so if I didn't have internet, I couldn't reach out to alumni, couldn't make these connections. And so then what am I paying that for if I can't access that? Right. You have all these schools that are touting their expansive alumni network, and it's a whole lot more difficult to get access to it when you're at home. And for somebody like me, who's going to be out in the real world in a few months, you know, especially like in that key period of March, April, where all the hiring is occurring, 
I mean, this couldn't, uh, the timing of the pandemic couldn't be worse. And not having that in-person, face-to-face interaction with career counselors, especially who are there to look over your resume, practice interviews, um, not having that sort of mentorship and, and guidance, uh, or at least some some degree of it taken away is, I think, something that is not, I think, affecting people f- from first year all the way to seniors, but I think especially upperclassmen who are starting to, you know, seriously think about what they're doing after graduation. So, uh, and I think like you were mentioning uh, regarding other resources on campus that just aren't there, haven't been there since virtual educations began. You think of experiential learning, thing, things like lab work, where, you, you know, you can think of it as like learning to drive a car. Like you, it's very, or it's a lot more difficult to learn a certain skill that's hands-on from being shown it remotely rather than having the opportunity to practice it. So that's a whole nother, a whole nother issue. Myself, I, I, I am not exactly the person to ask as a social science buff, but... <laughs> the same for me. But I, I, think, I think what comes in with that too is the question of, it's not even just whether, I mean, like you bring up a great point of like, how do they offer that class? Because an online version of that won't ever be as effective as in person. But then I think what comes with that is even if there is some sort of online alternative, I feel like a lot of just like private and public, you know, companies, corporations will look at those classes and see sort of an asterisk next to it and say, all right, you took organic chemistry, you took bio 101, you took any sort of lab class, but you didn't actually do the lab. So you pass this online course where sure you watch somebody do the lab, but I actually don't know if in person you can do the job well. And so I think all of those classes are going to be had with an asterisk next to them where that's not ever going to people that are going for a a STEM degree aren't ever going to, you know, evade that, that shadow of missing those classes in person, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, in that case, I think expectations definitely need to be tempered. You know, I don't think there should be any sort of asterisk or, or sort of, you know, condition on somebody completing a course when it's something completely out of their control that happened. And I think that, again, speaks to that balance of how are we going to give students the the resources that we promised to them in a circumstance as unforeseen as this one and I think that's still the big question that remains to be answered here yeah and I think I think another thing that comes to mind is the the jobs that are uh, at stake here uh, that I think we, we should also touch on as well you think of the college IT people who uh, you know keep keep everything in that realm running smoothly you think of everybody involved with res life a lot of those jobs are at least for the time being redundant are just not applicable during this time. So you have to think about how how the school's balancing that burden as well. I don't know if you have anything further to say on that point, Jack. Yeah, no, I think it's um I think it's a difficult thing to sort of address because it is a temporary sort of problem. It could only be this summer and we all could be going back in the fall. But right. it also could be that there's a second wave and then that's a longer time to we're back. And that could be a year where you can't really go out and fire a whole department of 12 workers who are residential life and say, you know, we don't need you because you're going to need them in a year. But right. the question of campus police and residential life where for the time being, it's a temporary situation where you kind of need to save costs because you got to stretch the budget. But 
you don't want to have to go and hire these people and fire them again. And then you also don't want to ruin their livelihood. So I think all of that comes wrapped into that question of what is tuition going to be and what is a fair tuition? Right. And I think that also contributes to the work study issue as well, because these aren't just full-time workers, but these are also part-time workers who are college students who won't have the availability of those jobs to help pay off their college expenses. I had a I had a discussion today. I was a kitchen manager for one of the campus pizza kitchens this past year, and we weren't able to train in the incoming group of kitchen managers. And I had a discussion with one of them today, and he, you know, he he expressed just how you know anxious he is about this upcoming fall, and just there's just no way to know whether the kitchen's going to open up. You know, it just really depends on how the summer and fall progresses. So there's a lot of these conversations being had, and, and I think it has a really profound impact on you know, both how we're balancing this issue of tuition, but also a number of other things interwoven with that, including work study and how, how we compromise for for that. And then scholarships as well. I think it's something that's definitely a complex issue and could talk all day about it, how, how it can be handled, but it's a, it's a difficult one uh, to say the least. Yeah. And what comes with that scholarship, little just a little tidbit on that, what comes with that scholarship conversation is if you lower tuition and your school offers merit scholarship, you negatively impact the school's ability to offer scholarships for the next three to four years because right. they need to make up that revenue again before they can hand that out. And maybe even longer than that, that could be a decade before they accumulate enough money to start handing out scholarships like that again. And I get to some degree that argument of, well, it's not my education, so what does it matter? But part of paying for your education, whatever school you go to, is you're paying for that name. And if your school can't go out and get the most attractive candidates that they want, you heard the integrity of your university because they don't have the best candidates. And so what comes in that whole conversation is just this huge thought and idea of, you know, what is integrity? How important is the name of my university versus the money that I'd be saving and all that stuff? So there's a lot of existential questions here that I don't really know if anybody has the answer to. I agree. This has been an admittedly uh, more serious episode, but you know we all we always have the uh, Trump quote of the week to cap off each one of these episodes. I know this is really the uh, the point in the episode that everybody looks forward to. Jack, would you say? <laughs> I definitely. I think to a certain degree, people put us on mute for the first however long, and then they just they wait for that last five minutes just to hear what the man in orange has to say. So yeah, you know, and you know what, I'm I'm fine with that. <laughs> Yeah, we, we're we only really saying stuff of a certain amount of value in the beginning that a lot of people, I feel like, it, they don't care. They just want to hear. They want to hear the tweets of the week. God, what an idiot. On that note, uh, Jack, what do, you, what do you have for us? Uh, what I have for you is very recently, if some of you haven't heard, I'm sure most of you have, but somebody in the Donald Trump White House was diagnosed with COVID-19. Now, I know what you're thinking. And no, it is not Mike Pence, despite the fact that he did not wear a mask at the Mayo Clinic. I know in your office pools, most people were betting on him. It was, in fact, one of his closest staffers, and he was giving his daily briefing, and a reporter asked him, how can you assure Americans that it is safe to go to their workplaces when the most secure workplace in the country, the White House, can't contain the spread of the coronavirus that has affected some of your own staff? And Trump sort of dismissed the question and then went on to say, I think it's very well contained, actually, which I have two thoughts on that. One, uh, that just 
doesn't really make sense with the fact that one of his staffers that brings him his meals got the coronavirus. And two, that's just a inherently short answer for a really complex question. <laughs> I was wondering what you thought about that. I'd show. agree. Yeah. Um, well, I think another tidbit to uh, add alongside that is with this potential outbreak within the White House, they are requiring everybody who works in the White House to wear a mask, except our very dear friend, the Donald. <laughs> Well, I think that that's the best way to distinguish who is the president and who isn't. Um, You look around and if you can see their nose and mouth, you know it's the man in orange. Right. And I think if there's one thing that uh, Mr. Trump and Vice President Pence are on the same same page about, it is the perpetual willingness to not abide by the standards that they are setting. If anything, that is the one thing we know that they will follow to their graves. Right. Right. They are very consistent in that respect. They are. They are. Uh, Sean, I was wondering what uh, what you had from our good old friend this week. Yeah, this once again is from the uh, Lincoln Town Hall that he had recently. There's so much good stuff to pick, choose from. But um, in honor of the 16th president himself, I figured this quote was something that was worthy of bringing up. I'll just go dive right into it. They always said Lincoln. Nobody got treated worse than Lincoln. I believe I am treated worse. Now, come on, All right? Lincoln was assassinated, and I know we can go, you know, we can go into the history of everything like that. But I think, you know, the what what Lincoln was dealing with is a little bit different than what you're dealing with, and the fact that he was assassinated while in office, I think, just ends that discussion right then and there, don't you think, Jack? I definitely think it ends that discussion. The topic of conversation that Abraham Lincoln and just the whole nation was dealing with at that point was a little bit more deep rooted than whether or not to wear a mask, whether or not to open barbershops. And so to say that you're getting lambasted more than a man who, along with a lot of other people, attempted to free a whole group of people that had been subjugated against for centuries is a little bit short-sighted. But at the same time, I don't think we should expect anything. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I would say, though, my advice would be, you know, me and Sean have been looking through quotes for the week and we were just listing some off to each other. And the Lincoln town hall that Trump gave this past week is a genuine goldmine of quotes. Oh, definitely. We've only said to you three, I think, but there's probably 20 that we could have picked from. Easily, easily. I mean, the guy is just a, a walking repository for sound bites. <laughs> He is he is the Oxford Dictionary of Stupid Things. Indeed. We'd encourage you to check it out if you get the chance. It is, I think it's definitely worth 10 minutes of your day to scroll through and look at the little tidbits that Mr. Trump has for all of us. I, I would definitely second that advice. And with that, I would say that uh, this two-part, the second part of Zoom Zoom, it comes to an end. And so we have quite a few more episodes coming at you, but we really appreciate you sticking in and listening. Signing off, this has been Jack Povolitis. And Sean Lonergan, we'll we'll see you next time. Until then, this is COVID College. COVID College is written and produced by Jack Povolitis, Sean Lonergan, and Sidney Povolitis. The show is edited by Sidney Povolitis, and the cover art is made by Grace Martin. The intro music is made by Kevin McQueed.